It's just after midnight, Monday, July 11, 2022. It's 120 days away from our critical midterm elections, and you are listening to your home for misinformation, disinformation, also known as The Truth, The Midnight Ride Podcast. I'm Connor Coughlin. Joining me is my good buddy, Paul Runyon. Paul, how was your week? Good, Connor. I mean, we a little bit of a tough situation with our son this week, which caused some consternation. We, we've had him in tackle football. He's a young kid. He's seven. He started tackle football, and the coaches started doing helmet-to-helmet, full-scale tackling in practice, and this whole longest-yard youth football thing <laughs> it's a little too much for him. So we had to pull him out. Tantrums ensued, and we're, we're kind of dealing with the consequences. But going to do flag football for a couple of years, uh, I think. That's that's actually uh, very smart. I know you're out in like SEC country out there, but um, I've heard uh, and I've heard even people like Drew Brees say that that uh, flag football is probably the best in, in Brees's own kids, I think, are in flag football until middle school or high school. So that's pro- for all the Midnight Ride listeners uh, contemplating Pop Warner or, or some sort of tackle football, the studies show and even Drew Brees himself will not put his kids in tackle football until about eighth grade. So I think you made the right move there. By the way, this is going to be our third segment today as we talk about. Just to cut in really quick, though, you you are right about that. I don't want kids to be, you know, getting hit in the head so many times that they're start talking like Joe Biden. So (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah, exactly. That that's supposed to happen when you're. 80, not when you're eight. So good call. <laughs> exactly. And and by the way, we will be talking about football. It's 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 funny you mentioned that because our third topic today actually is a sports topic that I think has societal ramifications. But first, let's go to our tweet of the week. And this comes from a guy that we sort of make no mo- bones about our support for him. It's America's governor, Ron DeSantis, who's actually, this tweet signals that he's taking an issue that is affecting his state and the other 49, or at least the other 47 in the lower 48, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida, who tweeted out uh, a little while, a little over a week ago, most of our topics today are are, uh, sort of evergreen topics that we, we, we did our special show on America's birthday, you know, so we couldn't really do a lot of the, all of the topics of the day. But this is from DeSantis a little over a week ago. He tweets out, quote, I am glad that the Florida Supreme Court has granted my petition to impanel a statewide grand jury to investigate international human smuggling networks that operate on our southern border. We are united in fighting back against Biden's border crisis and protecting Floridians. So the state of Florida is looking into human smuggling. It's a little bit weird because they're not on the southern border, but as we have said here on the Midnight Ride, all 50 states are border states under this president. Does the Biden administration have anything to worry about here, Paul? Well, this is a really interesting situation. So the floor, the state of Florida has been greatly impacted by the illegal aliens that have been coming into the country since 2021. So to give a little background uh, of what's been happening here, there's a uh, there's a statute within the state constitution of Florida that says, quote, when the governor, for good and sufficient reason, deems it to be in the public interest to impanel a statewide grand jury 
she or he may petition in writing to the Supreme Court for an order impaneling the grand jury. And in accordance with the petition, the court may order the grand jury for a term of 12 months. The Supreme Court has just granted that. And it's really going after a very specific issue. So to give a little background, foreign nationals who illegally enter and then settle in the U.S. sometimes seek to bring family members illegally across the border to join them. And to do that, they often pay transnational criminal organizations, otherwise known as TCOs, or other illicit actors to smuggle these family members in. There have been many cases of this. And and to make it even worse, they sometimes hire these organizations to smuggle children in alone. So like unaccompanied by a family member or a legal guardian. Now, this it's not isolated. It happens. It happens all the time. It's like a normal situation. Uh, Many of these children who are smuggled end up being assaulted, raped, kidnapped, killed, you name it. Uh, We had that horrible situation a few weeks ago where 50 unaccompanied migrants were killed, were found dead in the back of a truck. I think it's up to 53 now. 53. And it seems, I mean, the Biden administration is obviously doing nothing to stop this whatsoever. So we've got a couple situations here. They're not only doing nothing to stop it, they're doing everything that they can to increase it and perpetuate it. Remember, one Supreme Court decision we didn't talk about was the Supreme Court ruling in a five to four ruling that the president does indeed have the, f- the power to overturn former President Trump's remain in Mexico policy for those who are claiming asylum or awaiting their, tr- their immigration cases. So what that will do, in addition to removing the, I forget the name of the, the policy that was related to COVID, right? I th- Title 42. The Title 42. Yeah. yeah, so totally. those two things that the Biden administration is doing are opening the floodgates, and they have to know what they're doing here. They're what they've done. What the Bi- one of the biggest fans of the Biden administration is those TCOs, because as you point out, the demand is so is so high for these folks to get here that they know that the U.S. government not only will not do anything to them, but is basically saying, "Come on in." All they have to do, and it doesn't it's a lot harder than it sounds, is get from Guatemala, Honduras, Venezuela, Haiti, Ukraine, wherever, to a port of entry, whether that be San Isidro in California or Laredo or one of these places. A lot of them are coming in through Texas. All they got to do is get there on the land route. Well, so those TCOs who are basically the drug cartels, and these are, you know, the, the Sinaloa cartel, the Los Zetas, these, these are very violent, very evil. Zapateca, the Zetas, yeah. Yeah, all of these guys, they're very evil people. And they control our southern border, not DHS or the Border Patrol, USCIS, none of that. It's these drug cartels. So if you want to get into the United States, you have to pay a fee. And typically for these folks, it could be somewhere between $1,000 or $10,000 or whatever. You're going to trust one of these evil, evil organizations with your unaccompanied child? You know, what if your child is a little boy or a little, you know, a 12-year-old girl? You're going to trust them? But th- so these people control the borders, Paul. I mean, 
and it's led to them being, a lot of these migrants being preyed upon. They are basically being herded around like cattle by bloodthirsty drug cartels, and it's all been created by Joe Biden's policies. Well, what's interesting about this is that 11,145 unaccompanied alien children were placed in Florida during last year, fiscal 2021. The number's higher than that this year uh, so far. It's over, it's 6,659 so far in fiscal year 2022. What's interesting is that last year, there were only 10,773 children placed in California. So more were placed in Florida than California, and Florida's not even a border state. So think about that for a second. Something fishy is going on here. It's also a smaller state. Yep, and it's a smaller state. California has twice the population almost of Florida. So And twice the, twice the land. And twice the land. Well, more probably more than twice the land. Exactly. So so think about that for a second. So something something fishy's going going on there. DeSantis wants to get to the bottom of it. And it's not just this doesn't end at the border with these transnational criminal organizations. Uh, members of these cartels obviously are operating in the United States. And who's working with these organizations to get them settled? with the people in the U.S. So there's a lot of these immigration uh, organizations, a lot of these NGOs, these nonprofits. Are they working with the TCOs to help bring these people across? A lot of things could get uncovered with this with this probe. Well, they're certainly working with the U.S. government. Yeah, exactly. I mean, a lot of this is going to get uncovered. And that, I, I'm I, what's interesting to me is why has none of this been uh, discussed before and what are we going to get from this? I mean, this is going to be a real full-fledged investigation that's going to bring a lot of this to light about how this is working. The administration, the Biden administration, is just sort of like ignoring it. So we have no idea what the reality is. So I think Flor- Florida law is going to, is going to help us figure this out. Well, you're not going to hear about it from NBC News or the Washington Post or any of the oligarch-owned corporate media. But somebody's going to cover this, right? It's, you know, DeSantis is going to lay open his books and his evidence that this the grand jury finds, and and we're going to find out some things. We're going to find out that taxpayer money was funneled to non-governmental organizations like Catholic Charities of America, of America, and these people run shelters where these people are dropped off by the Border Patrol or the immigration authorities in these shelters, and they're given a phone call to their relatives that are already here. They're given food, they're given toiletries, et cetera, whatever, probably baby formula, which some of us can't, still can't get in the United States, all subsidized by the American taxpayer as part of this pathway to, you know, a new life, which again, we don't, we here at the Midnight Ride do not oppose these folks coming here or getting a new life. What we do oppose is just these, you know, basically letting people come in unchecked because the numbers of criminals, Paul, that are coming in and potentially terrorists are going up because we we don't have the means, quite frankly, with the numbers of folks that are coming across to even stop everyone. and. Uh, let me tell you something else. You mentioned these criminal groups are now operating in the U.S. Well, another thing that they do is sex trafficking. 
because you have these large networks of migrants all over the United States, and particularly in Florida, in like say the citrus and agricultural fields, you know, with with one third of American males idle already, and a lot of Americans not wanting to work in the fields. It's it's demanding work. It's it's not Americans are not very well disposed toward doing it. Are you saying we've turned, are you saying we've turned into a country of snowflakes and wimps? <laughs> well. Yes, I am saying that. And so in these agricultural camps, which are very large, you know, Florida is a big agricultural state. You have a lot of migrant labor, both legal and illegal. And what some of these organizations have been known to do is bring in essentially sex slaves, people who wanted to come to the United States. They got the only way to get into the United States through our southern border is through these TCO organizations. And so the TCOs say, well, what are you going to do? Call the cops. They take them to a migrant camp in Florida or a meatpacking community in, in Kansas or whatever. And they say, you work for us now, and this is what you're going to do. So you have these young folks who are either essentially sex slaves or indentured servants. And what they do is they service these migrant workers. That happens. And you will never hear Mayorkas or Biden talk about this, but there are people who are being exploited in more ways than one. And and as you mentioned, some of them die coming over because they're just treated like livestock. They are. And the other piece of this too is where is local government? So there's a law in Florida that requires state and local law enforcement to transfer custody of criminal aliens to the federal government, at least when the federal government does not refuse to take custody. And according to reports from federal law enforcement, Miami-Dade County is refusing to honor federal requests to take custody of criminal aliens in Miami-Dade's detention facilities, including aliens arrested for attempted murder, domestic violence by strangulation, assault with a deadly weapon, and lewd and Lavishless, how do you pronounce that? It's la- lascivious. Yeah, lascivious. Thank you. You're you're the smarter one than me today. Uh, lascivious behavior on a minor, and they're conducting an investigation on the officials in Miami Dade and whether they're violating Florida law. There could be some real criminal repercussions for for public officials in Miami. And to date, I don't these sanctuary cities. I haven't seen anybody being held accountable for. For doing this. And this may be a big turn in this investigation. Yeah. Well, it's good news that it's happened. Uh, hats off to Governor DeSantis. And, you know, Governor DeSantis, whether it's taking on child groomers or, you know, trying to enforce immigration, you know, law integrity, he's basically, he's doing a lot of things in his state, school choice, other things that really, when we continue to talk about him here on this show, should be a model for not you know not only other red states but all states in America, and it only elevates him more. Um, so hopefully this does that. One other thing we didn't talk about was all of the two a.m. flights that are landing in you know airports around the country filled with migrants. Greg Abbott of Texas, who talked about these fifty-three dead migrants in San Antonio, and said these deaths are on Biden. He was very upset about the federal government just dropping off migrants all over his state 
So he started dropping them off on the steps of the U.S. Capitol, you know, renting buses and, and taking them up there. And and these were migrants who said, yeah, I'll take a free ticket to Washington, D.C., because they had families that were on the eastern seaboard, so they agreed to do it. But it's governors like this that are basically exposing this for all Americans to see. And Biden is, or whoever is going to run for president on the Democratic side, had better watch out for Ron DeSantis. I fully agree. He's uh, a man on a mission. And what's really interesting is that in a year from now, when the campaign heats up for 2024, he is going to have so much to point to from a policy standpoint, because he has done so much over the past few years as governor and accomplished more than I can imagine any governor ever doing, that I don't know how anyone running against him is going to be able to to point to so many successes. I mean, if you're in the Senate, wow, you, you took some votes. That's amazing. But as a governor of a state this large, I mean, it's brilliant what he's done. Let me ask you this, since you live there some of the year, uh, how's the economy doing down there? Because obviously Bidenflation is is killing America. We're, we're essentially in a recession right now. Florida did better during the pandemic because of DeSantis's policies, but how are they doing right now down there? Well, Florida, of course, is being impacted by the Biden inflation and the Federal Reserve and everything else that's kind of impacting in the United States. However, much of that is being is being uh, mitigated by the continuing population growth because as uh, Americans continue to flee high tax, oppressive blue states. So many of them are going to Florida, which continues to be one of the fastest growing states. And that is working to keep the economy strong, the real estate market stronger than it is in the rest of the country. The job market continues to be very strong. So Florida continues to buck the trend nationally and is a real success story to show what small, limited government can do for supercharging economic growth and prosperity across all income groups. That's good. Well, you mentioned the real estate. We know that a lot of the elites from living up in uh, the Hamptons and and maybe uh, Martha's Vineyard, some of those folks are buying properties down there as well because they see that Florida is the place to be. Before we go to the next segment, real quick, one good news story. Um, the feds have arrested four people in connection with the 53 deaths in San Antonio. One of them was Omero Samorano Jr., who is from Brownsville, Texas, lives in Pasadena. He was arrested on human smuggling charges, long criminal record. Also a guy named Christian Martinez. He was arrested in Palestine, Texas, charged with conspiracy to transport undocumented migrants. If convicted, these two guys, maybe they were in the truck, they could face life in prison or even the death penalty. This is a capital case, potentially. We'll see how serious the Biden administration is about this human smuggling thing, because these- So were they arrested by Texas officials or were they arrested by DOJ, federal? Do we know? Well, the DOJ issuing the indictments- So it had to be federal then. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously this is such an- Governor Abbott of Texas is correct. These The blood is on Biden's hands. He knows he's got to- He's got to clean this up. But I, I don't know. Are they going to charge him with the death penalty? They're kind of towing the line here because they know that they invited this. But it's good to see that four people being brought to justice and hopefully they do get the death penalty because 
you know, by abandoning that truck in this 100-degree heat, they caused the death of those migrants. Well, we got more coming up. They sure did. Yeah, we got more coming up here on the Midnight Ride. Uh, what's our next segment going to be, Paul? Guns. <laughs> guns, guns, guns. As we predicted, as we predicted, the state of New York has basically given the double middle finger to the Supreme Court and to you and I as Americans who value our Second Amendment rights. We'll talk about that next on the Midnight Ride podcast. We're back, and as often happens on the Midnight Ride, sometimes either Runyon or Coughlin makes a, a prediction or asks a question, and weeks or months later, it becomes prophetic. And that is what happened here with the Supreme Court overturning the ruling by the state of New York or the, the policy by the state of New York pertaining to concealed carry handgun permits. In the case of New York State Rifle and Pistol Association, versus Bruin, you might recall, just a couple weeks ago, the Supreme Court ruled six to three that the state of New York could not have a separate standard for the peons, the peasantry, as it were, and you had to show just cause to have a concealed carry permit. So people like, you know, celebrities, you know, Bernie Madoff, very wealthy people in New York City could say that they had a need for one, but the normal subway riders and the denizens of Staten Island, they were never going to get a concealed carry permit because the people in Albany said that they weren't worthy of it. That was struck down by the Supreme Court, but we asked then, are they going to, I think it was you, Paul, that asked this question. It'll be interesting to see, I think you said, that will they just put forth a bunch of regulatory hurdles to make it impossible. And that's exactly what's happened here, right? It is, Connor. They have put this bill, Governor Hochul just signed it on July 1st. Uh, it seems like they passed this thing in the dark of night. There was no news about it at all. All of a sudden, we just realized that she signed a new bill. And you wouldn't believe the red tape that is in this thing to have you get a concealed carry permit. So first of all, there's some normal things in there. 16 hours of firearm training. I think a lot of states do require that, but it gets a little interesting. First of all, you've got to provide four character references, including a list of the contact information for domestic partners or adults who reside in the same house. You have to submit a three-year history of current and inactive social media accounts. So that's a real interesting one. So uh, the government needs to parse through everything you have said online for three years to determine if they agree that you are in uh, good moral character, showing the essential character, temperament, and judgment necessary to be entrusted with a weapon and to use it only in a manner that does not engender oneself and others. What do you think... Kathy Hochul's determination of good moral character is. If you um, maybe liked a post by President Trump on Twitter uh, before his account was taken out, do you think that's going to impact your good moral character? No guns for you if you do that. Um, conversely, if you tweeted that burn it all down after the uh, Supreme Court Dobbs decision, burn it down, these justices lied under oath, they should all be murdered, you could probably still pass muster according to the New York Thought Police. 
Oh, a very good moral character. Or if you were rioting, maybe if you burned down a police station during the George Floyd riots, that probably put you in very good moral character. So this is interesting. The, the thought police will decide whether or not you are worthy. So before it was just, you have to be a well-connected, wealthy Democratic Party donor or somebody to get one, or you're, you're wealthy enough to pay the right bribes. But now you have to pass a, a standard of you know, political thought or something to that effect. I wonder though, how would you even, how would you present a three-year history? How would you even do that? Do I have to print out my, my tweet history or my Facebook history? How, how would you even do that? I mean, it looks like that's what they intend. You probably need to go to your, your Twitter feed, your Facebook, your Instagram, and probably print out all three years, maybe turn it into a PDF and then send it to them or mail it. I, I assume that they're going to interpret that and it's probably going to be done in the most onerous way possible. Maybe you have to bring it in person, print it out to, the, to an office, something of that nature. So I think the thought police thing with the social media, that is going to get challenged. Uh, the domestic partner thing, that's an interesting one. Yeah. I mean, I could see some bureaucrat in Albany or in Manhattan calling your spouse and asking a lot of leading questions and potentially causing it to be held up that way, if not stopped, right? It, I mean, suppose they ask, hmm, have you guys ever had an argument before? Oh, you got, you had an argument? Oh, that's, you know, you could, oh, he could be very unstable, so we're not going to grant it. So there's, there's all kinds of things they can do. Now it gets even crazier, this bill. So it includes a list of areas where concealed carry is, is not allowed. So get ready for this list. You know, most, in a lot of states, maybe it's like only schools, right? That seems, there's like, some states have like gun-free zones. But here's the list for New York. Now, just remember, in the, in the ruling, in the ruling, the Supreme Court said you cannot say that cities are not okay because people, you know, live there, they work there. So I think Clarence Thomas, in the opinion for the majority, said you cannot, it's reasonable to say no banks, no sports arenas, no polling places, but you can't just wall off a city. So that's, they, they told New York they couldn't do that. Well, let's see what they, yeah, let's see what they just said this time. Okay, so the list includes schools, summer camps, libraries, daycares, parks and playgrounds, places children gather, theaters, museums, entertainment venues, which an entertainment venue could be almost anything, places of worship for religious observation, polling places, educational institutions, health medical facilities, federal, state, local government buildings, homeless and domestic violence shelters, places where alcohol is consumed, which once again could be a lot of places, outdoors as well, Restaurants, public transportation, subway, buses, airports, uh, and at public demonstrations and rallies, and in Times Square. And even more, they're now do, they now put another rule in this bill called default no concealed carry on private property and businesses unless deemed permissible by the property owners. So what Hochul said of the law is, we're making no open carry the default position for private businesses. That means any business, grocery store, retail, private home, 
place that wants to allow guns on their premises will have to demonstrate that and establish that they put a sign out on their property that says, concealed carry guns are welcome here. Well, I think that, number one, I think that's going to happen in a lot of parts of New York, okay? You're going to see those signs popping up in a lot of places. But I think that is probably, that that particular provision is probably permissible because if I own a business, let's say I own a, uh, a baseball card store or something like that, I may not feel comfortable with people coming in there with guns, right? Isn't it my right in my establishment as the proprietor to say, please don't bring guns in here? Uh, I think it's completely your business. But what the state is saying is that uh, the default position is for every business owner to say that guns are not allowed. And if you want them allowed, you have to put the sign up. So it's a complete reverse. So essentially what you're doing is you're putting where the Second Amendment is a is a constitutional right. By making the default position no, you're essentially making private businesses say that they need to concur with the constitutional right or the automatic answer is no. I don't know how legal that is. Um, I also think there's some huge freedom of speech is- rights issues with the social media issue. I think there's going to be a real questionable legal issue here with the Supreme Court. And I, you know, this could get struck down pretty quickly. So there's the good moral character is another big issue. So I was reading an article by constitutional law professor at George Washington University, Jonathan Turley. And he said that that issue is going to raise comparisons to the Sullivan Act of 1911, which has become invalid, which which gave local officials discretion over who could carry concealed weapons based on proper cause. And that was what was just um, overturned. So it looks like, you know, I think there's going to be some real issues here. So this whole advanced screening and issues, the social media, it's probably overreached by the state. So we're going to see what. I think it is. And lawsuit being filed in three, two, one. Yep. I think we're, <laughs> we're going to see the first. I mean, businesses, uh, private businesses could file lawsuits saying that they are being inconvenienced by having to put a sign up saying that they allow guns. I mean, when there's a second amendment right, and then you're all, you're going to incur, business has to incur an expense to put up a sign that says that guns are welcome here. I could see businesses suing um, on that. So there's, you know, you've got, there's a lot of issues that are going to be parsed here. No, absolutely. Well, you know, it, it was recently reported that in the last year, there has been a huge exodus from the state of New York. 300,000 New Yorkers have left the state, costing them, and the IRS confirmed this, $19.5 billion, because the people that were leaving the state of New York were the elites and a lot of the wealthy people. They're sick of the high taxes there. Many of them no longer have to work in offices. They can, they can check in from their, their computers and work remotely. And so why would you pay the exorbitant taxes, especially when you have, in the case of New York City, an idiot mayor like Eric Adams, a lot of the, the cool things about New York City, like Broadway and Madison Square Garden and a lot of the entertainment venues and cultural hubs were shut down during the pandemic, unlike in Florida. So a lot of the people left and the government overreach is just 
it's almost too much to take. Let me read the statement from the Senate Majority Leader in New York. Listen to some of the hyperbole here, Paul. In response to the Supreme Court's decision implying that guns are more important than lives in this country, we are passing legislation to ensure that New York State has safe and responsible gun laws. States are the last line of defense, which is why we're stepping up to protect New York from being easily flooded with concealed weapons and keeping firearms out of the wrong hands. These measures, in addition to previous anti-gun violence legislation we passed, are vital in a time when there are more guns than people in America, blah, 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 blah. By the way, last I checked, crime was, despite all these wonderful laws that these complete morons are passing up there in New York, crime is increasing. And one of the reasons for that exodus, too, is that people don't feel safe in Central Park or walking around. So um, I'd be interested to hear what our New Yorkers, the listeners in New York and the Empire State think. You can send us an email at the Midnight Ride Podcast at gmail.com. But Paul, I think this thing will be overturned and it it's probably going to be the thought police provision. I mean, you can't have people saying this is acceptable, this isn't. I know the reason they did it might not have been just to screen out conservatives, but really who's going to print out a three-year history of all their current and defunct social media accounts. Exactly. So I, I see this getting overturned in short order, but let's get to, to, the, to the real issue here. And, and you never see this discussed, but how many concealed carry holders in general are involved in gun crime? I have seen some statistics that I've looked up here. Number one is, according to some studies, they commit less than one third of 1% of crimes with firearms. Another piece is that 0.33%, less than less than 0.33% of crimes are committed by concealed carry holders. Exactly. They are even 12 times less likely to commit a crime than a police officer. <laughs> if you can get if you can uh, uh, if you can figure that out. <laughs> they're they're 12 times less likely. Yeah to commit a crime than a cop. Than a cop, exactly. So it shows that they are, this actually is from, from usconcealedcarry.com, which, which is a website that, uh, that tracks a lot of these, that attract, that, that take uh, a lot of these surveys and, and try to parse some of this stuff. So it actually turns out that concealed carry holders are probably the most law-abiding group in the country. If you can even imagine it. Well, I can imagine. I'm, I'm part of that group. Yesterday, I walked in to the supermarket with a Glock 45 under my shirt and went around and shopped. And I've, I've gone to some of those places that the state of New York does not allow. Um, I've certainly gone to restaurants and bars. And I went through some of that firearms training, which by the way, I do think, I don't know about 14 hours, but I think at least eight hours is, is definitely a good idea. But the people that I went through this class with were some of the most conscientious law abiding people I've ever met. They were asking a lot of really smart questions about some of the laws and the guns. These are people who take this responsibility and it is a responsibility very seriously. So what is the New York state government so afraid of? This is my question. Why are they why are they so afraid of allowing law abiding some of the safest 
law-abiding, patriotic Americans uh, to carry guns. What are, what are they worried about? I just don't understand, especially when crime in New York is going up. Well, I think what they are worried about might be an expression I saw on a T-shirt one time at a gun club. When the government has all the guns, you get tyranny. When the people have guns, you get liberty. In a nutshell, when Governor Hochul and her National Guard and her state police and all of the municipal police that Eric Adams has, when they have the guns, they get to say, they get all the say. And let's also remember, we talk about tyranny. Let's remember that Governor Hochul is not even elected. <laughs> she took over when Cuomo resigned. And as you said, this law was passed so fast, your head could spin. And th this is another thing that happens when you have one-party rule in a state. We see this in New York. We see it in California. When the governor has both, you know, of the legislative chambers under his or her thumb, they can just, you know, dictate anything. And it happens because the minority party, in this case, the Republican Party, really has no say. And, and as you pointed out, there wasn't, I don't remember seeing any media reports that this was even being deliberated. No, it was probably in a drawer. They probably had it all written up secretly before the Supreme Court made the ruling. The second the ruling was made, it was voted on, signed, before anybody even knew about it. That's exactly what happened. They had time when this, this Supreme Court case was being deliberated. They came up with these policies. They brought in their anti-2A uh, activists and lobbyists to help them write it, and they came out with it. But they still have the U.S. Supreme Court, and they still have the law of the land, you know, that will get this overturned, hopefully. But in the meantime, New Yorkers, I encourage you all to not only fight this, but also comply with it and, and still try to get your permits, because as the Supreme Court ruled, you do have this right. And in the meantime, the National Rifle Association and others will fight on your behalf. When we come back, if you haven't been paying attention to college football, and it is the summer, so only the super diehard fans have, then you may not have heard about a very troubling trend that's taking place in college sports. We'll talk about it and its ramifications for our country when we come back on the Midnight Ride Podcast. Welcome back to the Midnight Ride. Paul Runyon here. Time for a little bit of a change of topic. We tend to discuss politics, uh, the Constitution on this show, but we're taking a little bit of a different slant today because we think it does have an impact for this country, and that is college sports, in particular, even college football. For those of you that uh, have been paying attention, you might have seen that things have been running amok in the last few months in the college sports world. First of all, the Big Ten Conference has now expanded to include UCLA, USC. Not sure if you guys remember, but the uh, Rose Bowl used to be the famous Big Ten versus Pac-10 Conference. Now it almost seems like they're becoming one big giant conference. On top of that, you've got athletes being paid millions of dollars to go play for various schools. Connor, what is happening? Well, what is happening is that capitalism in its most base form has 
taken over college athletics, which is a massive industry. And we talk about politics a lot. We talk about the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has a hand in what we're about to talk about. But the, mo- the money in college sports is huge. Let's remember that the NFL went woke during the George Floyd thing. And I imagine that they lost some fans, but they're still immensely popular. But a lot of people like Paul Runyon and Connor Coughlin left the NFL and pretty much focused on college after they started playing two national anthems and holding up people like Jeffrey Blake as examples of good citizenry. Colin Kaepernick has been embraced. So people are really starting to embrace the college kids who are less, shall we say, politically active and aware. But amateurism, on which the National Collegiate Athletic Association was built, has gone out the window. There is a quarterback from Pittsburgh, California, the Bay Area, named Jaden Rashada, a quarterback from Pittsburgh, California, who is apparently the highest ranked or most coveted college quarterback recruit in the country, or one of them, who apparently, it has been rumored, has signed a $9.5 million deal to play for the University of Miami, no surprise there, the Hurricanes. Now, this is not, for, for the people who aren't that into college sports, this is not the university paying this recruit. This, is, this comes under something called NIL. You want to explain that, Paul? It, exactly. So a few, there was the, the uh, NCA put in a rule called NIL. And what it really is, is allows players to get paid for their name, image, and likeness. And what that was intended to do was help athletes sort of get some earnings uh, through sponsorship. So maybe if you go attend a school, you could then work with a local car dealer and make an appearance and get $1,000 to sign autographs. You could do things outside of the actual playing of the sport to get money off your name. And I, I personally believe that that is something that is good. I mean, there are a lot of athletes out there that are working really hard and, and most of them do not have the, the uh, ability um, or the opportunity to play at the professional level later on. So the school that you're attending is making lots of money off you through ticket sales and others. And college football is a $4 billion industry in the United States. Billion with a B. It is. I think it's bigger than the NFL. And so you've got, so what it was going to do was allow these these students to uh, make a little money. However, the NCA wrote the rules really vaguely. So there wasn't a lot of an interpretation. So what happened was initially it did start that way. You saw quarterbacks, other people getting $1,000 here, $5,000 there to make appearances. Then all of a sudden boosters got involved and said, wait a second, we can interpret this as market. anything could be marketing. So now you've got people paying these players, like uh, Mr. Rashada, $9.5 million just to go play at a school. And it's kind of iffy about what's even attached to that. So things have, have run amok. And now what's happening is you're, you're dividing between the haves and the have-nots. So you've got schools that don't have the money, can't get these good players, Places like Miami, which uh, 
University of Southern California, some of these schools that have had a reputation for uh, with these alumni that are willing to pay anything are essentially buying up all the recruits. And then you've got some schools like the University of Michigan, for example, who are continuing to do things the right way. And Jim Harbaugh, their coach, has said, we are an amateur program. We are not going to be paying these players. If, if the players were happy to, to support them engaging with local organizations and endorsement deals and things of that nature, but boosters from the school will not simply be paying to attend. They are now losing out on recruits of people that would go to places like Miami and Michigan, who's historically been a top 10 school uh, in recruiting has now dropped to number 55 and dropping farther. So this is a real problem for college football because it's no longer student athletes. It's just turned into another version of the NFL. We can debate ad nauseum how long that has been the case, that how long has college football been a de facto minor league for the NFL, but but there are a lot of student athletes in the revenue sports. And we should point out that this NIL, this NIL thing exists not only for football and basketball players, those are the two big revenue sports, but it also applies to gymnasts and field hockey players and any athlete who is essentially providing their, for lack of a better term, labor to the, the university. They're putting their blood, sweat, and tears into the sport in addition to what they're doing in the classroom. And so the Supreme Court actually upheld this in a case called Alston, NCAA v. Alston. They upheld a district court ruling that said that they were entitled to compensation. And so you're absolutely right. This has become a professional sport for these athletes. This kid, Jaden Rashada, my sources, my brother played in the SEC, okay? I have some sources that tell me that an SEC school, and the Southeastern Conference is the epicenter of the NCAA football. That's where you pointed out Michigan. Last year in the national championship game, Michigan, against all odds, made it to the final game to play against the University of Georgia. Well, they didn't make it to the final game. They made it to the semifinal. The semifinal game, the BCS championship tournament, which only has four teams in it. And against all odds, they got there. and. You could see the difference between kids who are there to study and kids who are just there basically getting paid to go and many of whom will not graduate. It, it was almost an unfair advantage. And as you pointed out, this NIL is going to exacerbate that. Well, my sources tell me that this kid, Rashada, was offered $11 million by a school in the SEC and he turned it down. Because, well, I mean, have you ever been to Miami? <laughs> I mean, an 18-year-old kid is going to choose. His parents may say, well, we take the money, but nine and a half, 11, hey, it's all good. I'm going to the NFL in a few years anyway. I want to be near the ocean with the co-eds and, and all that. But it's the, these are bidding wars now. You have all of these athletes being wooed by these well-heeled donors, and it's almost like an auctioneering situation where you say, well, I, I got six million here. Do I hear seven? And a lot of these schools have very wealthy donors. The University of Miami, I'm sure, has a lot of people that are middle-aged folks who grew up during the, the age of the glory years of the University of Miami. They've got a lot of money and they're willing to buy championships. And that's what you're going to see, teams essentially buying championships now. 
And what's interesting uh, about that is that these schools, these schools are not are are paying these kids more than NFL first round draft picks. So, for example, Rashada was getting paid more money than Kenny Pickett, who is the top rated quarterback in the uh, NFL draft and picked in the first round. So it's it's hard to even imagine college sports is going to become even more lucrative for these players than the NFL is. However, all is not lost. Have you uh have you heard of the the Cavinder twins? No. Okay, so uh, let me give you a little background on them. They are basketball players previously for Fresno State, easy on the eyes. What, girls basketball players. The girls basketball players. They are twins. They're blonde. They're they were able to amass a TikTok following of uh, up to five million, I believe. And when NIL struck, they instantly started doing endorsement deals right away, and uh, have made, I believe, to our male listeners, uh, if you're googling the Cavender twins, you will see what Paul is talking about. This is yeah. There's there's money to be made for these young ladies. Exactly. So so they are five foot six guards and uh which is re- not really the the height that's going to be necessary to play in the NBA but they've also been able to use what god gave them to uh to, to their advantage and they're they've actually uh, speaking of university of miami they recently uh have switched to the university of miami from fresno state to help enhance their careers and help with their nil and help sign their endorsement deals etc and this is a case where I believe that the NIL process is working, and I think that they're doing it right. I mean, obviously, women's basketball is not a money-making sport for Miami. I don't think they're getting paid a huge amount of money to attend the university, but they made the decision. It's not a money-making sport for pro athletes in the United States. WNBA players don't make very much. In fact, you see them, the best players, playing in places like Russia, free Brittany Griner. Uh, you see see them playing in Eastern Europe and other places because they get paid so much, a huge multiple times more than they do in the WNBA. Yeah, exactly. But regardless of that, I mean, these twins are able to use their, are, are able to earn this money um, through endorsement deals at school that previously they wouldn't have been able to allow, be allowed to do. And I think that, you know, in that case, I think it works because, I think it's it's good for them to be able to be entrepreneurs and work that on, work that out on their own. What I think is not good is this bidding war that happens by boosters just paying for somebody to come play football. That is a major problem and I think it's degrading the entire college experience. I think it is making everything about life completely transactional and I think it's going to hurt colleges in the long run uh, because you're going to have just this small number of athletes playing schools. And I think it's, uh, I think it's overall going to hurt the process. I think it's going to be detrimental to these young kids in the long run. Well, without a doubt. And let me point out that the two revenue sports, right, where this is really going to be an issue, kudos to the Cavender twins and any athlete in any non-revenue sport who can make some money off of this. I, I, my hats are off and I think it can be a good thing, but in the revenue sports, we're talking about men's basketball and football. National Football League, 70% of all players are bankrupt within five years of leaving the league. In the NBA, it's a little bit less. It's 65%. Why is that? 
Well, as you point out, I mean, it makes things transactional. It's all about the money. Kids are emphasizing on social media what kind of cars they drive, how many cars they have. People are buying palatial homes. They're not managing their money very well. I think financial literacy needs to be taught to all kids in high school. But but these kids, it's all about, you know, being the big man on campus and having all this money. And you're right, they don't have a normal college experience. So really, yeah, they get they it's like a supernova. You know, they go up in the sky, they're they, they have all this money and their life is so great and it just flames out. And a lot of them end up essentially on the streets with nothing. And so how can we say that as an organization, the NCAA is good for society? When these sports were created in college athletics, it was about teaching people the benefits of sportsmanship and working for the greater good. That is completely out the window. And I think that somebody like Jalen Rashada, he's going to get paid in the NFL no matter what. We don't have to worry about his livelihood. He can probably take out an insurance policy on his right arm or his knees or whatever. So if he does get hurt in college, he will be taken care of. But to give him $10 million in college, I think is going to kill college sports, at least the reasons why we have it. I believe if you give a man a fish, he eats for a day. You teach a man to fish, he eats for a lifetime. And you used to see people like Alan Page and Myron Roll and and college athletes becoming judges and surgeons and all these things, football players doing that. You're not going to see that as much anymore. I think, here's here's a prediction. It won't happen this year, but Connor Coughlin prediction. In within five years, you're going to see this facade eliminated, and you're going to have people lining up for Auburn University or T- University of Texas that are not even students. That's where we're headed, Paul. Uh, wouldn't surprise me at all, and uh, it's unfortunate because these kids are should be getting educations to teach them to become men and husbands and set them up with the tools for life, and instead they're just getting used, getting a quick buck, and could end up in uh, you know really precarious situations when uh, their football career is over. The exploitation continues within the NCAA. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. We hope you enjoyed our show. We hope you're a subscriber and giving us a five-star rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you're listening to us. And please tell a friend about our podcast. The word of mouth is the best way to get our, our story out there. Again, our whole point with The Midnight Ride is to explain to you and and to all of our listeners the threats that are coming every day against our constitutional liberties. Paul, last word? No last word here. Just have a great week, everybody. Have a great week. We'll see you next time on The Midnight Ride. Thanks for listening. 